Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping, and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. Let's go to God in prayer and ask him for blessing as we come around his word. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a speaking God. Your mercy, you have revealed truth to us. You've revealed your son to us. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we come to your word. Bless us with understanding. Bless us with soft hearts that receive your word and do your will. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First off, uh, I just want to introduce myself. I'm, I'm Eugene. It's good to be here again after a number of years. Uh, you might have seen me and my family. We've started attending Grace again in May. And this is my first Sunday uh, here back on staff as a pastor of Grace Baptist. So it's really good to be here with you all. Last Sunday, I was uh, at the Young Adults Retreat. It was good to spend time with them. And as I prayed, it was a really encouraging time. Uh, so do, do, you know, do encourage the young adults. They're, they're a lovely bunch of folks who really love the Lord, keen to grow in His Word. So do encourage them and, and try, to, try to speak with them as well. I'm sure you'll be encouraged as you spend time with these young adults. I'm grateful to be back here at, at GBC, serving among you all, serving with you and serving you as an elder. Uh, I, know that, I know some of you, so I'm looking forward to renew uh, some of the relationships that we share, our, our friendships. Uh, for some of you, I, I don't know, I don't know as well, and looking forward to getting to know you better in the coming uh, time that we have together. So, I'm going to start calling some of you, texting some of you, bugging some of you. So, don't, don't worry if you get a call from the pastor, you're, you're fine, you're not in trouble. Uh, it's just me wanting to get to know you, so I hope to do that over the, the, the next number of uh, months, maybe years, just trying to, get all, trying to get to know all of you really well. And as I was uh, preparing this sermon on Acts 9, uh, I was thinking of the question, what kind of church do we want to be? What kind of church do we want to be? You know, I'm not thinking about what kind of ministries or programs or activities we should have, and those things can come later. But I have something more fundamental in mind. You know, what values and characteristics should we have as the church, as the people of God? As the church, we, we understand that we represent Jesus. So what kind of people should we be in order to represent Jesus well? 
We know we should be unashamed of the gospel, as the title of our sermon series on the book of Acts reminds us. And so far we've seen that being unashamed of the gospel involves being passionate to share the gospel with others. But being unashamed of the gospel also means more than that. Being unashamed of the gospel means more than just what we do, i.e. sharing the gospel. But being unashamed of the gospel also means the kind of people that we are. Who are we if we are a people unashamed of the gospel? Being unashamed of the gospel means allowing the truths of the gospel, as we've just considered so far in the service, you know, God is merciful, allowing the truth of God's mercy to, to really penetrate our hearts, uh, to, to change our convictions, to, to change our very character, so that we are people who reflect the truths of the gospel. We, for example, we, we are people who reflect the mercy of God as well. So being a people who are unashamed of the gospel means that our life together as a church, not just our ministries and our activities, but our life together, and that means how we treat one another, reflects Jesus and his gospel. As we've just read, Acts 9, 32-43 is our passage for today, and this passage focuses on what the Apostle Peter does among two groups of Christians in two places. First in Lydda, and then Joppa. And both of these towns were located in the coastal region of Judea, not too far northwest of uh, Jerusalem. And, and these verses, uh, they're, they're narrative, they're divided into two parts. First, the healing of a paralyzed man, Aeneas. Second, the restoration to life of a dead woman, uh, Tabitha, or, or otherwise known as Dorcas. And, and you notice that there are no sermon points on your outline because those two are essentially the sermon points. The healing of a paralyzed man, and the restoration to life of a dead woman. So those are the two main points that I'll be kind of talking through today in this sermon. And as we work our way through this narrative, I hope to highlight lessons for us as a church. And I hope that we can learn from Peter and these Christians here in Acts 9 what it means for us to be a people transformed by the truth of God. So let's dive in and begin by looking at the, the healing of this paralyzed man, Aeneas, verses 32, 35. But first, a bit of context. If you look up one verse, verse 31, uh, it's one of those summary statements that we find uh, across the book of Acts. So here in verse 31, Luke gives us a summary of the story so far in the book of Acts, and he tells us in verse 31 that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You know, if you remember in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples that when the Holy Spirit came and empowered them, they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and up to the ends of the earth. And this summary statement here in verse 31 tells us that Jesus is true to his word. Indeed, we see the gospel going out to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria. Not quite to the ends of the earth yet, but we begin to see Jesus keeping his word as we go along in the book of Acts. And the gospel was going out, and people in these places, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, were believing in Jesus. They were becoming his followers. These 
the Christians who had been scattered by the persecution that arose after Stephen's execution, what did they do? When they were scattered, they, they were making disciples as they went along. And they happened to go along to these places, Dea, Galilee, Samaria. And as they went along, they were making disciples. Churches were being planted in these places as these Christians were gathered into local communities that met regularly. It's amazing, as you read so far in the book of Acts, that God was using weak believers going through the trials of persecution to accomplish His great purposes. And our text says, verse 32, that Peter went here and there among these believers in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. It begs the question, you know, what was Peter doing as he visited all these churches? What was Peter doing? And the, the, these, these verses don't tell us explicitly, but maybe I can turn us to some other passages to help us understand what Peter was doing as he visited these churches. Now, many of us are familiar with the story of Peter. He was appointed by Jesus as one of the 12 original disciples. And if you, if you look at the life of Peter early on in his discipleship to Christ, what, what kind of man was he? Maybe somewhat proud? Uh, somewhat self-confident? Maybe a bit cocky, right? Maybe I don't think we're being uh, unjust if we, if we kind of describe Peter that way, especially the early part of his life. But, but then we know what happens next, right? What happens next to Peter? His pride comes crashing down, doesn't it? His pride comes crashing down. When does, it come, when does, his, when, when, when does his pride get deflated? When he denies Jesus three times, despite assuring Jesus that he would not fall. But of course, Jesus knew better. And when, 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 when Jesus foretold Peter's denials, uh, this is what he said to Peter. I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And listen carefully to this. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter was confronted by his own sinfulness, denied Jesus. But that denial actually bore good fruit in Peter's life, didn't it? He also personally experienced the mercy and grace from Jesus Christ. Peter turned again. And because of this, Peter was well qualified to strengthen his brothers and to feed the Lord's sheep. Now, as someone who received mercy from Jesus, Peter could also encourage other believers. And this was exactly what Peter was doing as he visited these churches in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. You know, if, if, if you're not a Christian, welcome. So good to have you here with us. I wonder if you find this a bit surprising. You know, the Bible talks very honestly about its characters. The Bible talks very honestly about its apostles, Peter. Uh, the, the chief, you know, supposedly the, 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 the leader of the apostles. You know, sometimes people think that Christianity is a religion where people try their best and then God kind of meets them and say, well done, I, I accept you because you're trying so hard and you're a good person. And maybe some of us think that about Christianity. But the story of Peter actually says that's not true. Christianity is not a religion for people who kind of do well and then God kind of comes alongside and, say, and says, you know, good job, let me see how I can help you. No, Christianity is a religion for people like 
Peter. Broken people. Proud people. Uh, people who, in and of themselves, don't commend themselves to God. But God, by His grace and mercy, turns them and receives them. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we come to God and, and say to Him, God, I've done so much. Just kind of meet me halfway and then, and then I'm there. No, no. To be a Christian means that we, we come to God and say, God, I'm, I'm broken. That there's nothing I can do to save myself. I need you to turn me again by your mercy. That's how I come to know you, Jesus. And that's what happened to Peter. And I wonder if we, we as Christians also realize that we are able to bless others when, when we ourselves have tasted the mercy of God. You know, we, we do most good to someone else when we ourselves have tasted that the Lord is good, that He has been merciful to us. And because He has been merciful to us, we can also strengthen the brothers. So we don't strengthen the brothers from, uh, because we are such good, upstanding people ourselves, but we strengthen the brothers because we have first received grace and mercy from God, which is really good news to us in ministry. You know, those of us who are seeking to serve and encourage other believers, it's really good news. Because I, I serve you as a pastor, not because I'm an amazing person, but I serve you as a pastor because God has turned me in His mercy from sin. And because I have tasted the grace and mercy of God, therefore, I strengthen you. That's, that's true for Peter, and I hope that is true for us as well. Isn't it true? When God humbles us, you know, we, we, we listen better to someone else. And when, when God humbles us, we, we speak more slowly. We speak with more empathy to someone else. When God humbles us, when we've tasted God's mercy, we're less critical, less judgmental, more patient, more compassionate. Isn't it true that when we, we ourselves have tasted the mercy of God, we're better able to point others to Christ has been merciful to us. You know, it's a, it's a simple principle that Jesus says in the Gospels, right? The ones who have been forgiven much, love much. If, if we struggle to love, is it because we have lost sight of how much we have been forgiven? Of how much mercy we have received from Jesus? You know, this, this, this grasp of God's mercy is a bit like food, right? Uh, you know, the, the Michelin star list of restaurants has just been released. There are a long list of restaurants. How do you know that the restaurants are really worth trying? How do, you, how do you know the restaurants are worth their money, right? I was looking at the article in the Straits Times the other day with a long list of Michelin star restaurants and checking their prices. Like, whoa, that, that's a lot of money to spend, and, uh, to spend on lunch and dinner. How do I know if it's worth the money? I just need to taste the food. Sadly, I need to spend the money first in order to taste the food. Or I need, to, I need to have someone who has tasted the food tell me that this is really worth your money. You know, one of the Michelin star places is a hawker, hawker stall in Chinatown. You know, I used to work near Chinatown, and every time I go to the hawker centre, I see a long line, and I just can't bring myself to stand in line for an hour for soy sauce chicken. 
But perhaps, you know, if one of you has tasted and seen that the soy sauce chicken is good, then you can maybe convince me to stand in line for like one to two hours for soy sauce chicken. So come find me after the service. You think it's really worth my while. But that's what, that's what I'm saying. You know, if, if we've tasted, if we've grasped for ourselves, had, had a personal experience of God's mercy, we will speak to others of His mercy. We will show mercy to others. As a church, we should continue to cultivate this sense of God's mercy in our community. How do we do that? Actually, in our gatherings on Sunday, this is a wonderful opportunity where we remind ourselves again and again of God's mercy. You know, after, uh, you know, for some of us, after what might be a discouraging and exhausting week, we gather again on the first day of the week. And as we gather, what are we doing? We are you know, recalibrating our hearts. We are refocusing our hearts on Christ, looking to Him. He is our Savior. He is merciful. And we want to order the whole service in a way that points us to Christ. We begin by praising God for His greatness, praising Him for what He's done. And then after that, in light of God's greatness, we confess our sins to Him. In light of His glory, we acknowledge that, God, we have fallen short of Your glory. So, so we come together and we confess, we pray, we ask God for mercy and grace. And, and then that leads us to a time of thanksgiving, where we who have received God's mercy thank Him for how He's been gracious to us. And then that, that puts us in a good place to hear His Word. We come to His Word with hearts that have been, as we've sung, humbled, broken by His mercy. And that, that gives us ears to hear. That gives us hearts that are soft to listen to His truth. And then we begin to respond to God. For some of us, in repentance. For some of us, we respond to God by having a renewed faith and hope in Christ that that strengthens us as we begin a new week, a new potentially exhausting and discouraging week. For some of us, it, it helps us to respond in praise, in thanksgiving, in humility, in obedience, and then so on. So I pray that as we, as we gather as God's people, I, I pray that this time that we have together is so precious. And I pray that in our time together, we will really point one another to the Savior that we have in Jesus Christ, that our hearts will be strengthened as we meet together and as we leave this place to, get, to go into the world for the rest of the week, we go with encouraged hearts, encouraged by the gospel of our merciful Savior. When the gospel takes root in our hearts, And when we grasp that we have received mercy, what will we do? We will strengthen and encourage other believers. This is what it means to be apostolic. To be apostolic means that we actually give ourselves for the good of someone else, to help them to know and to follow Jesus, to grow in Jesus. This is the kind of culture that we want to encourage in the church. Uh, This is the kind of discipleship that we want to have. Not a program, but actually a culture where every member of this community is giving and receiving encouragement, is building someone else up in Christ. And I, I hear that some of you are already doing this, so I'm really encouraged. And I hear that some of you are meeting during the week to read the Bible, to pray. Others of you are meeting to share prayer requests. You know, some of you are meeting just to talk with one another, to, to see how you can encourage one another. This is so good. This is really encouraging. And I hope that this culture continues to grow so that it becomes more and more normal 
for us to spend time with one another during the week, whether it's reading our Bibles together or just speaking words of encouragement into one another's lives. That's what it means to be apostolic as God's people. We want to be apostolic as a church as well. What does this mean? It means that as a church, we should have a vision for strengthening other local churches too. To be apostolic as a church means that we understand that the kingdom of God is bigger than just these four walls. The kingdom of God is bigger than just us. There are other faithful churches in Singapore and else in other places that we want to come alongside and strengthen them as well. One of the ways we do that is by having conferences. So I'm so thankful that we can have the Jonathan Lehman Conference and have Christians from other places come meet with us and meet, us to meet with them. I mean, that's just one example of ways that we can strengthen other local churches in Singapore and beyond. So I hope that we as a church will grow in this area of our ministry where we will spend ourselves for the good of others, both here and elsewhere. Back to our story. Peter visits the saints at Lydda, and while he's there, he meets Aeneas, a paralytic, who has been bedridden for eight years. I don't know if some of you have, uh, you know, some of you may have encountered illness before that's left you kind of confined to your house or maybe confined to your bed for the extended period of time. Uh, you know, I, I was sick a couple of weeks ago and I was just flat out on, on my bed for a couple of days and I found that really difficult. You know, just a couple of days in bed. Aeneas has been in bed for eight years. Imagine, been in bed for eight years. Can you imagine the the amount of uh, weakness and you know, muscular atrophy that Aeneas must, must have suffered eight years in bed. And apart from his medical condition, we don't really know much else about him. But he was probably a disciple of Jesus as well. At least the context seems to indicate so. So Peter goes up to Aeneas and says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise. Make your bed. And immediately, Aeneas gets up. You know, I, I don't want us to miss the, how amazing and wonderful this is. You know, sometimes you read these accounts, and go, yeah, yeah, you know, another healing, great, move on. You know, you know, Luke records these accounts in quite a matter-of-fact way, right? But, but they're not matter-of-fact. These are amazing accounts of you know, miraculous healing that God is doing among his people. You know, this, this healing is instantaneous. And this paralyzed man is just getting up and he's walking. And, and you know, doctors will tell you uh, that someone who's not been walking for eight years cannot just walk. The, the muscles are no use. You, you need to kind of rehabilitate, gradually strengthen the muscles so that the muscles can again bear the weight of the body, but not so for Aeneas. He gets up and walks. And how, you know, this is really amazing that Peter tells him to make his own bed. Right? You know, not, Peter doesn't say, oh, go for physiotherapy, you know, do a gradual kind of rehab. Maybe in three weeks' time, you can kind of move this around, maybe make your bed a month after that. No, this is instantaneous. Rise. Make, up your, make your bed now. And Aeneas does that. And no, another detail that we mustn't miss, Peter says, who does the healing? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ heals you. Isn't it wonderful? Jesus is not here. He's not physically here in this passage. But Peter reminds us that Jesus is still very much at work in and among his people. 
Even though they don't see him physically, but he's there. And he's still working. And he's still working among us as well. Jesus is the one who heals. He's the one who continues to work. And in fact, this healing is very similar to Jesus' own healing of the paralytic in the Gospels, where Jesus says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Very similar wording. Uh, This confirms Peter's authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. As we shall see next week in, in Acts chapter 10, God is sort of placing his stamp of approval on Peter as his apostle, you know, like, confirm plus chop, double confirm, whatever you call it, you know. God is saying, you know, Peter is my authoritative apostle. And he will bring the gospel to the Gentiles, something that we see in Acts 10. Something new is about to happen, and God wants to show that it is Peter, God's appointed servant, his his chosen servant, who will make that breakthrough for the gospel. And this dramatic healing of Aeneas, it grabs the attention of the people who lived in Lydda and Sharon. You know, it's interesting to note that as they see the miracle, they, they actually don't ask for healing themselves. But what do they do? They turn to the Lord. They, they seek Jesus himself. They, they don't just seek the gifts that Jesus gives, the blessing that he brings, but they seek him. They turn to him. The healing is a sign that's meant to point us to Jesus, God's promised King, the only Savior for sinners. He is our greatest need, even more so than any physical healing in this life. Jesus is the one we need the most. Why? Because all of us have turned away from God. And instead of living for God, our Creator, each each one of us has chosen to live for ourselves. And the Bible calls this living for ourselves Sin. Sin is not just I do bad things or I break these rules, but but sin is fundamentally a a matter of the heart, where where my heart is orientated away from God and towards myself, serve myself, want to make a name for myself. That's sin. And this is true for all of us. We've all chosen to live for ourselves this way. And the Bible says that because of this, because of our sin, we rightly deserve God's judgment against us. But God, as we've sung, as we've thought about so far, He's a merciful God. He didn't leave us in our sins, but He sent His Son, Jesus, who perfectly obeyed God, even to the point of offering Himself as a sacrifice for sin by dying on the cross. And Jesus mercifully took God's judgment in our place, so that whoever believes in Him, whoever repents of their sins and believes in Jesus, can receive free forgiveness from God. Whoever believes in Jesus can receive God's mercy free. And Jesus rose from the dead to give us life. And now Jesus calls us to turn to Him. Turn to Him. Because He's the only one who can give us true forgiveness and life. Bring us back to God. I wonder if you've turned to Jesus. Have you considered your own sin? And has that broken your heart? Has that led you to find in Jesus the Savior? Turn to Him. He is merciful. He will receive all who turn to Him by faith. So that's Aeneas. Uh, Next, we consider... uh, Habitat, 
in Joppa. So Joppa is about, was about uh, less than 20 kilometers away from Lydda. And a woman named Tabitha or Dorcas, which means gazelle, died. What do we know about Tabitha? Luke tells us that she was a disciple, which really is just another way of saying that she was a follower of Jesus, a Christian. Luke also tells us that she was full of good works and acts of charity, which means that her life was devoted to doing good and being merciful to others. So when Luke describes her as full of good works, Luke, Luke doesn't mean that you know, Tabitha was a, an occasional volunteer for a community outreach project. So Tabitha regularly devoted her time and energy. She gave her life, loving and serving others. That's what it means to be full of good works and acts of charity. And, and one of the things that we learn about her from this passage is that she probably cared for the widows. You notice that when, when she... Uh, when she died and her body was laid in the upper room, these widows gather around and, and they're showing the, the garments that Tabitha had made. So, she, so Tabitha probably had a ministry of caring for the widows. How? By making clothes for them. You know, just a bit of context. Clothes in those days were expensive. You know, they couldn't just walk into Uniqlo and buy something on discount. No, they, they, you know, they, they were expensive and usually people just had maybe one or two changes of clothes. That's it. So Tabitha was, was giving time and money to actually make clothes for them, which was a lot of effort, a lot of resource involved in that. And that's, that was how she was caring for these widows in the church. It's clear that Tabitha was deeply loved by the fellow members of her local church. You know, when, when she died, they washed her, which is common practice, you wash the body. But what, what's unusual, that we find in this text, is that they laid her in an upper room. Kind of unusual, right? They don't bury her straight away, but, but they, they, they kind of almost put her body on display. Like a mausoleum, I don't know. They put, the, put her body on display in the upper room. And why did they do that? Kind of strange. And from what follows, we, we learn that they, these disciples did that, put Tabitha's body on, in the upper room, probably because they knew that Peter was nearby, just up the road from Joppa. So two disciples went to call Peter, hoping that he would come and raise Tabitha from the dead. That's why they didn't bury her straight away. You know, again, this reveals Peter's uniqueness as an apostle of Christ. You know, the, the, the authority to raise someone from the dead wasn't commonplace. Sorry to burst your, the bubble for some of you, but the, the authority to raise someone from the dead wasn't commonplace. If it was, then why, wouldn't, why would the disciples bother sending for Peter? They, they could have just done it themselves. But they understood that Peter was a unique apostle, and because he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, he had the authority to actually raise someone from the dead. Next question, why does Luke tell us about Tabitha? Why does Luke give us these details about Tabitha? You know, what he's not saying, you know, listen, what he's not saying is that Tabitha was resuscitated because she was a good person. So Luke is not saying that. You know, if that was the point that Luke was making, then he would have told us about Aeneas' goodness as well. That's why he deserved to be healed. No, Luke, so Luke is not saying that Tabitha deserved to be raised from dead. But what Luke is doing is highlighting that being... No, Luke is highlighting for us what being a follower of Jesus looks like. Right? He calls Tabitha a disciple... 
And, and Luke is defining for us what a disciple is. What kind of character and values a disciple should have. So, so if you are a Christian, Luke is saying to us here, this is what we should look like. If, if I call myself a Christian, this is the kind of life that I live. This is the kind of person that I should look like. So what kind of person does a disciple look like? Full of good works and acts of mercy. Full of good works and acts of mercy. You know, sometimes I, I, I fear that for, for us Christians, besides we, we, we talk about being justified by faith alone, and we're saved by faith alone, but sometimes I think we, we misunderstand that by thinking that good works don't matter. Now, why are we saved by faith alone, right? So I can do whatever I want because I'm saved by faith alone. Yeah, but no, but, but what, what Luke tells us here is that, yes, we're, we're saved by Jesus, but, but that salvation from Jesus Christ, that mercy that, we, that we've received from Jesus, what does it produce? A life full of good works and acts of mercy. Those, those good works and acts of mercy do not save us, but they are the product, the fruit of a life that's been transformed by the mercy of Christ. Generous mercy is one of the defining marks of genuine followers of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus himself is a merciful saviour. So those who follow a merciful saviour will themselves be merciful as well. You know, hear what Jesus says in the Gospels. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Almost sounds like it's conditional. It's not. Now, Jesus also says in the Gospels, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What does being merciful look like for us? Being merciful look like for us, God's people. As Tabitha shows us, it means loving and serving one another church means understanding that the church is God's family and that we are brothers and sisters who belong to the same family because we have the same loving, merciful, heavenly Father. And because we belong to the same family, we pitch in, right? As, as family does, right? You, you know, we understand this in our biological families. When you have a reunion dinner, for example, everyone pitches in, right? Some help with the cooking, some help with the preparations, some help with the cleaning, etc. We all pitch in. Why? Because we belong to the same family, brothers and sisters. So being merciful in this family means helping to meet one another's needs, whether it's practical help, like moving house, cleaning house, or financial support, where we pitch in our financial resources. So those who have much have no leftover and those who have little have no lack. Right? That's a biblical principle. There is equity in the body of Christ. So for this to happen, uh, each of us needs to get to know the whole family. Right? We need to get to know our brothers and sisters because that's how we get to know the needs in the body. 
not just the people that we're most comfortable with or most familiar with, but, but we begin to make the effort to get to know the whole body of Christ, the whole family of God. And as we know one another better, I, I believe that we will begin to see more and more opportunities to love and to serve one another. There, there are many, many needs in the body. And sometimes if we don't know one another, we, we are maybe blind to these needs. But when we begin to have conversations with one another, when we begin to ask one another, hey, how can I pray for you? Or how was your week? Really, how was your week? Tell me. I really want to know. And when we begin to ask one another questions like that, we begin to realize that there are many, many needs in the body. And there are many, many opportunities that we can be full of good works, full of mercy towards one another. I wonder if some of you have uh, Ian and Sherry's keys to their apartment. I think one of, the, one of the great ways to you know, do good for them is why don't you go and clean their house while they're away and kind of surprise them when they get back. I don't know, if, if, if someone has a key to their apartment, maybe you can think about doing that. You know, pull together a work party, say, let's just clean their apartment. Don't, don't take their stuff, please. You know, don't, don't steal. Just, just go in and clean their apartment so that when they come at it, wow, this, what happened? You know, this place is really nice. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, really, that's a small way of just showing mercy to one another, right? Helping one another in these practical needs. Uh, I just want to highlight a couple of our members who are doing this well. And I, don't, don't want to, I don't want to kind of embarrass them, but I do have to mention their names just to encourage them. You know, I'm so encouraged by Carrie in the office. She visits uh, members who are shut in, who can't come to service, and she just spends time with them. That, that's a wonderful act of mercy. Uh, Kokpui, who helps lead the visitation team, I mean, he does wonderful work, just visiting members, caring for them practically, and can I just encourage you all to, to encourage Carrie and Kokpui and, and the visitation team. Think about joining the team yourself. You know, these are just little ways we can show acts of mercy to one another. Another example, one, one of our members, Elizabeth, has just lost her husband, Patrick. And I think we can be merciful to Elizabeth. Why not come alongside her, pray for her, ask her, hey, how are you doing? How, how can we help? Is, is that, can I just walk alongside you and, and share your sorrow during this difficult time? Remember that the Bible calls us to grieve with those who grieve. When one member of the body hurts, the whole body shares the pain as well. That's what it means to be family. Show mercy. Now, we also show mercy by being patient with one another, by forgiving one another. Now, one, one good example of showing mercy, how many of you find moving very stressful? You know, you've moved house before, right? How many of you really enjoy moving house? No, no one, right? It's like, you're crazy, who enjoys moving house? No, why? Moving house is a stressful time, right? Packing, unpacking, arranging stuff, trying to figure out what to bring. We're going to move the church back to our building. Can you imagine how stressful that will be? Can you imagine the, the frustration, the impatience, you know, maybe the disappointment, like, oh, how comes like this? I wish there was more, right? You know, can you imagine the, the difficulties that the move back to our building could present? And I'm not, I'm not talking about logistical difficulties. I'm, talk, I'm talking about relational difficulties. This is a wonderful opportunity to show mercy, isn't it? As we think about moving back, you know, we have a lot of logistical preparations in mind. But I wonder, as, as we begin to move back, do we prepare our hearts? Can we prepare our hearts to move back? 
so that we ask God, God, give, give me a merciful heart. As I talk with other people and, and kind of get into the thick of moving back, you know, I, I'm, I'm showing mercy. You know. my, my first impulse is not to get angry, get disappointed, complain, get bitter. But my first response is to show mercy, to thank God, show mercy to this person. Let me do that as a church to really prepare our hearts, not just our logistics, but prepare our hearts for the move back to our new building. So these are just some examples of showing mercy. We can also show mercy beyond our church to, to see how we can serve the wider community. There are many needs, I'm sure, in the McPherson area. So we can think about showing mercy to those in the community around us. Mercy ministry isn't a substitute for, the, for gospel ministry. But showing mercy adorns the gospel. It makes the gospel attractive. Showing mercy helps to give credibility. It helps to give weight to our gospel witness. Well, yesterday, the Pink Dot Movement had their annual gathering. And the slogan of the Pink Dot Movement is supporting the freedom to love. Now, increasingly, the, 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 narrative in society, the narrative, the story in society that we as Christians face is that we are unloving. It's that we are unloving. Now, that, that's, the, that's the narrative in society more and more. If you support love, then it looks like pink dot. And sadly, some of our churches confirm the prejudice that we are unloving because we fail to love, show mercy as we ought. It's a real tragedy because why? Because we worship a God who is love. We worship a God who is merciful. And as his people, we have the privilege and calling to show the world what God's love and mercy look like. Now, we, as God's people, we, we have this wonderful calling to define for the world what love actually looks like. We, we, have, to, we have this wonderful calling to define for the world by our very lives what mercy actually looks like. So won't you join me in praying for GBC that we would be a community that shows God's love and mercy. When Peter arrives, he sees Tabitha, kneels down beside, beside her and he prays. Like Elijah, who prayed for God to raise the widow's son. Then turning to her, Peter says, Tabitha, rise. At once, Tabitha is restored to life. She opens her eyes, sits up, and Peter helps raise her up. You know, again, there are many similarities between Peter and Jesus here in this account. You, you might know of the account of Jesus raising the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue ruler from the dead. Uh, over there, he, Jesus says to the, child, to, the, to the daughter, child, arise. You know, but the key difference between Peter and Jesus is that Peter prays while Jesus does not. Why? Because Peter needs to depend on Jesus. He needs to pray and ask Jesus for help. Raise Tabitha, whereas Jesus simply raises the, the daughter from the dead it, by his own authority. News of Tabitha's miraculous resuscitation spreads throughout the town, and Luke tells us that many believe in the Lord. You know, do, do we see how the practice of mercy within the church commands the gospel to outsiders? It's almost as if the, the outsiders see, wow, you are a merciful community. I want to find out more about Jesus. 
That's what's happening here in Luke's gospel. Oh, sorry, in, in Luke's account of in, in Acts. I must conclude. The healing of Aeneas and the restoration of Tabitha to life are miraculous signs that point to the power, love, and mercy of Jesus Christ. He is with us. He is with his people, and he is still at work in and through us. This same Jesus empowers us by his Spirit to be his faithful witnesses, to to be a merciful people, to live in a way that commends the gospel to outsiders. And we tell others about Jesus with our words. We also reflect the mercy of Jesus with our lives. May this be true of us now evermore. Pray together.